Hello, Brattleboro, and welcome to this edition of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters. I have with me today my regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser, and we are going to talk about how things in Montpelier shake out for Wyndham County. Hello, Emily. Hello, Olga. So we have been spending, what, about four weeks, Mm -hmm. three or four weeks talking about morality and whether you can legislate it or not, and if you do, how to do it well. And now we have reached the end of that conversation, and we want to do sort of our reflection and what we learned and where we're going next. So for Emily, what did you learn? (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, she probably should have been prepared for that question. Um, Drink more coffee. You'll be good. Yeah. Well, it's it's evening right now. That's true. Right? We're still faking it for our listeners. Yeah, we are. Yes. We're not going to tell them while we're pre-recording this at six o'clock in the morning. Nope. That's why our voices sound so good. (laughs) So for me, it's um, really reflecting on that we've come out of this long history in Vermont of trying to legislate morality. Mm -hmm. And that when we do that we wind up with policies that um, in the case of say, I think the best example of this is when we talk to David poses Mm -hmm. that when we try to legislate morality, that we create a system that perpetuates shame, Mm -hmm. which in the case of drug use is really exacerbating the very challenges that we want to find solutions to through the legislative lens. So, when we make things illegal in this case that are behaviors that we don't want people to engage in, we wind up in a situation where people are then engaging in more illegal behaviors and having a hard time moving away from those illegal behaviors because they're trapped in this criminalization frame that we've Mm -hmm. created for Mm -hmm. them and that the community has created for them. And so I think when we try to legislate morality in this way, we wind up really moving away from solutions that work and continue to dive down into solutions that need more solutions that then need more solutions that then need more solutions and we wind up with these band-aided policies as we update our moral frames because morality is always changing Mm -hmm. thank goodness (laughs) um and so we see that with our alcohol laws we see that with our sex laws we see that with our public use laws and we see that with our drug laws and so And I'm sure there's some listener somewhere who's saying alcohol and drugs are the same thing. And I'm sorry, I made my list while I was talking. Um, But I think when we try to legislate morality instead of legislating common sense solutions to challenges in our community based on best practice, then we aren't ever going to catch up Mm -hmm. with our own senses. Which is pretty crucial because government does tend to run slower than society often runs. Thank goodness, yeah. often. <laughs> yeah, sometimes That might be what's saving us thing. right now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it does. And um, so we have the community that's really itching for faster solutions right now in Vermont, mm-hmm. um, especially in Brattleboro, and is then subject to this long arc of morality that legislation's been built on. Those are really great points. I, you know, for me, what, what I'm, I've been kind of sitting with is, you know, when we're trying to, to quote unquote, legislate morality or these behaviors, um, 
whatever they are. It's so important, as you just mentioned, that laws and policies reflect what the community needs and not just the behaviors we don't want to see. For example, like, why is someone reaching out for drugs? Mm -hmm. What, you know, what else in our system do we need to repair so that that's not what someone needs to reach for? Um, However, to do that, we really need to understand what the community needs mm-hmm. and, and to be able to make policies that's flexible enough to meet different types of communities. Um, however, <laughs> it seems to me like, and this goes back to the conversations we, you and I have had about um, community cafes and how do you get people at the table because the lawmaking policy, uh, process, it, there's testimony and there are ways to get public feedback, but I don't know that they're really deep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so there's that, that kind of flaw in the system. But I think the other problem we have, and this is just a mindset that humans tend to have in general, going back to that scarcity model, mm-hmm. you know, when people are, are building policy or they're, they're advocating for something, there are winners or losers, or at least perceived winners or losers. And how do you bridge those two kind of gaps mm-hmm. so that you can build a, a flexible policy that meets as many people's needs as possible? I think there that winners and losers frame, I think there's two answers to that. One, I think it's the job of the legislature to transcend that, um, whether it's partisan issues or um, people's sense of scarcity and abundance, but to be sort of sitting above the surface in some ways and able to see the full picture mm-hmm. and create legislation that meets everyone's needs or the needs of the people who most need their needs met. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the other part of it is that, yes, exactly what you're saying. The public hearing process is designed for sound bites and winners and losers and for and against. Mm-hmm. And even when we sort of do community-based public hearings, it's still, you know, a three-minute sound bite. It's not an long conversation it's not a meaningful conversation it's not asking communities to come together and come to consensus before we legislate Mm -hmm. and that I think will always create a disconnect in the minds of Vermonters between what's happening in Montpelier and what's happening in their communities because Mm -hmm. folks don't have the time or the space or the forum to be having those conversations with each other Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I would say forum is is one of the the big things that's missing. Mm-hmm. You know what what type of um, model would be the best way to either get even get that information. Well, I'm hosting a legislative forum, um, the first one of the new legislative session next week. This week, you know the thing with Fridays, it's hard to know what's this week and what's next week. <laughs> But on Monday, October 21st, so in three days, um, at the library. And I'm really wrestling with what is the right meeting technology to have that meeting work. How Mm -hmm. do we make it a meaningful conversation? Knowing that some of the folks who are going to be in the room have come to every session we've ever had. And I've heard my, you know, lengthy spiel on minimum wage. And other folks are walking in the room for the first time. Yeah. Yeah, that's one thing that's so interesting about community conversations, and I even see it as a reporter. You you can't control when someone dips into the process. Mm-hmm. 
And so you, you also can't control what knowledge base they dip in with or what experience they dip in with uh, or engage with, I should say. Uh, and yeah, so it's, it's how do you, I do this with articles. How do I write something that someone who has been reading every single article will find something new and yet someone who's fresh to this can get the context they need mm-hmm. to then, um, luckily I have like a thousand words to do it. <laughs> And someone is sitting there, hopefully devoting their whole attention to it. Uh, so it's a slightly different situation. <laughs> you could have reading lists, required reading before you come to the... Forum. Oh my goodness, as if the whole thing wasn't alienating enough for people. Um, yeah, and it's funny, you know, occasionally someone will come to one of these meetings in the, you know, liberal stronghold of Brattleboro with a different opinion. And Ooh, that's daring. It's really interesting to try to welcome those folks. Mm-hmm while so many of my neighbors um, feel, you know, right now feel so threatened and alienated by anything other than the sort of a straightforward progressive frame. And Mm -hmm. so how to explore those ideas when people are so scared of difference right now. I'm, um, maybe because it's so early in the morning, I'm thinking about Mr. Rogers. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's that classic scene that he did where um, he took off the shoes of the African-American police officer and mm-hmm. then they put their feet in the Yeah, little it was fo- a hot day. So yeah, they just so they put their feet, come yeah. over and cool off and they put their feet in the little foot bath together. Um, and that was at a time where people were not swimming in the same swimming pools. Mm-hmm. Like we had laws against swimming in the same swimming pools. And I read an article recently about a woman reflecting on her mother, really trying so hard to get her as a white girl sort of emotionally ready for integration mm-hmm. and having, you know, sort of movement friends come over and um, families of color come over and play but they weren't ever allowed to go anywhere in public Mm. and how as a child she found that so confusing and alienating Mm -hmm. because no one was explaining it to her and no one had to explain it to her because she was white. And so that small thing that, you know, Mr. Rogers did, um, which I think about a lot, partly because I'm one of like, I don't know, like 15 Gen Xers in the entire legislature. We are like (laughs) a very unrepresented demographic and generation. Yeah, Um, remember we're the the dropout generation. We're the loser generation. No one pays attention. (laughs) No one pays attention to us and certainly none of us run for office. Um, And, you know, not that we're, yeah. 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 I think we're all still really struggling with that rent and child thing with the parents. Mm -hmm. Um, So... When I think about that and what it takes for a few people to sort of step a little bit outside the norm Mm -hmm. and set that for everyone else. And I think in some ways that's what Vermont legislature did with civil unions Mm. was show that act of almost courage. Right. So. It wasn't full marriage. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, it was a comp- it was a compromise. It's not in some ways, it was a radical compromise yeah. that was actually incredibly alienating. Mm-hmm. Um, as a, you know, yeah, as a queer woman, I found it incredibly alienating when they did that. Mm-hmm. But it was still stepping significantly forward and into a courageous path that had not been trod, tread, had not been walked before um, in Vermont. 
or even in this country. Mm-hmm. And that helped shift the conversation a little bit. Right, because when when marriage equality passed, what, how many years later, mm-hmm. people were like, huh? Oh, okay, that yeah. passed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that feels normal now, right? Yep. That feels normal. We were sort of preparing the normal with mm-hmm. political courage. And what I see now playing out in the legislature around this issue of legislating morality is we hypothetically have this, you know, veto-proof majority. You right. call it the, like, democratic supermajority. You can call it whatever you want. But mm-hmm. I think from the perspective of folks who are living in Brattleboro, maybe living in Chittenden County, we should be stepping forward into such political courage right now mm-hmm. to really deal with these fundamental issues of dignity that come when we're legislating morality. Mm-hmm. You know, the dignity of what treatment looks like or what access to what you need looks like as someone who um, needs to sell sex or is engaging in drug use or wants to use public spaces in a way that middle class people are not quite comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And these fundamental issues of dignity in our communities. And we could step forward with courage into this, but we're stuck in this morality trap that we can't quite navigate our way out of because it's so scary. Mm -hmm. It's so scary to say, yes, I am a moral person too. And I don't think this is what's going to be the best way to create public policy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's one. When I was looking through my notes last night and preparing for this conversation, one thing that stood out to me was going through my notes with Meg Mott and she said one of the things democracy demands of us is that we be courageous together and I'm I'm just sitting with that like what what does that mean and I think one of it is one of the meanings is being able to hold different points of view Mm -hmm. um, and and debate those and share those Mm -hmm. Um, so what do you think, y- you touched on it, but, but why do you think we as a community, um, or anyone who might be listening to this on the podcast, um, maybe we aren't stepping forward and, and being courageous together. What do you, what are some of the stumbling blocks that you're seeing? Um, I think part of it is, you know, fear and fear of vulnerability, um, fear of other people's perception. Mm-hmm. I, you know, can't help but reference Brene Brown um, or Rebecca Solnit here mm-hmm. and sort of the emotional landscape that we need as community to step forward um, and how the we've seen really so recently in our time that the traditional image of a powerful leader mm-hmm. who will sort of set the stage for morality in our country is not available. Right. Um, and I don't just mean that in the context of the president, um, even though that is a stunning example. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, you know, just as much true as we're sort of rewriting and re-understanding history. You know, the people that we hold up as, he- some of us held up as heroes, 
turn out to be, you know, genocidal colonizers. Um, the artists that we saw as culture setters turn out to be rapists. And so that image of a powerful leader is really, I think, corrupted in mm -hmm. the public mind in so many ways. And so we're still trying to find our way towards how we find courage without that other person being courageous right in front of us and mm -hmm. asking that of us. We don't quite know how to ask that of each other. Well, and I would add to that, that we are, our models of power so often have been power over power under. And if you step out of line, um, there will be consequences. Yes. And, and so that certainly uh, test people's uh, courage but I would say we also have built into our society so many ways to shut people down mm -hmm. uh, that we use against each other even even when we're not necessarily in power uh, positions of power and and the one I see uh, happen a lot in Brattleboro and and the reason I'm pointing this out is because the the point I want to make is that it doesn't really matter where on the political spectrum you sit. Mm -mm. You can use these tools. And one of them is, <laughs> I've been reflecting on my, my 10 years at the Commons and reflecting on how many conversations we had 10 years ago that we are still having. 10 years, Olga. Congratulations. <laughs> Why, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Um, and and I think about I think about this and 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 how in some ways we have evolved as a community in some ways we have not and you need to write some articles about that yeah sorry in my free I'm time. so sorry not in your free time <laughs> for the comments um, could be Olga's tenth anniversary issue there you go I'm gonna go I'll go talk to Jeff about okay. it after this okay. okay and and then I want a long vacation after that yeah absolutely um, paid. Yes. That would be even better. Yeah. Um, but one thing I've noticed is, and I'll, I'll just point out select boards because I think that's a framework we all have in our minds, that you know, a member of the public will bring a, a problem to the board, and there will be back and forth, and folks will be like, well, what about this? What about this? And, and we care about this. And the board will say, this is what we can do. This is what, you know. So there's a discussion. Mm -hmm. And usually by, it's not uncommon, by the end of the discussion, someone can say, well, this is what we can do. Mm -hmm. And let's move forward this way. And so there's this little forward momentum starts. And then someone will get up and say, yeah, but what about so-and-so? Or, or we have to be compassionate about what? Or you, you didn't consider X. And mm -hmm. like the whole fledgling forward movement just falls apart. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that is one of the way we sometimes shut people down is in this community, I think we frame it as compassion, mm -hmm. but I think it, its consequence, intended or otherwise, ends up as um, a shutdown. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think we, we also use um, the framework of winners and losers a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and it must be perfect rather than a, f a f step forward. I don't know if you see that, but that's what I, I see. do see that. I see that happening constantly. And um, I see that as a legislator as well, where, you know, I'll have a moment of pride in the work that we're doing, um, which is hard and, um, you know, not really paid a living wage and, mm -hmm. you know, 
framed as a part-time job and a full-time job and all that stuff. So I'll have a moment of pride, which is really what I need to like get through this in mm-hmm. some ways. And immediately someone can, you know, and I can point out the flaws myself, you know. Um, but I think a lot of that comes from the fact that that initial discussion was not a holistic discussion, right? Mm-hmm. That initial Good conversation point. where that first idea for a solution came in was just three people, six people, 10 people figuring that out and not really fully understanding the mm-hmm. issue before a solution was come up on. And I know that we can sort of um navel gaze. Yes. That's just the word. Thank you. <laughs> um but I think there's also a middle ground between sort of taking the time to really get our heads around it. When we the work that the COSU has done, mm-hmm. um the consortium on substance use, they had a full year of yeah. a pl- funded planning to really just understand what the challenge of opiates looked like in our community and what they wanted to do from there Mm -hmm. a full year where they didn't have to do anything but explore the problem and understand it and that to me seems like a really necessary part because we have very few problems left that aren't complex problems Mm mm-hmm And we are all deeply connected to each other. You pull one lever, something else shifts. And we need to take the time to understand those things. And so when we're always sort of jumping to immediately to a solution because we're scared to disappoint someone because everyone hates government and doesn't trust it and thinks government doesn't do anything. And so we want to prove that government's useful. Mm -hmm. I see the select board doing this just as much as the legislature does. Um, We are missing out on the necessary time we need for effective solutions because Mm -hmm. people will remember and understand an effective solution, Mm -hmm. but it takes a little while to get there. I want to go back to what you were talking about, um, about stepping out of line and there being consequences Mm -hmm. because that was a real theme that came up with a lot of our listeners. Mm -hmm. And I think it really speaks to this public participation piece and this courageous leadership um, to sort of transcend morality when um, we talked to Chris Mm -hmm. he talked about in public spaces historically marginalized populations or including just people who aren't from Vermont Mm -hmm. um, need permission explicit permission to use land in certain ways Mm -hmm. um, because they are very aware of what the consequences might be if they don't. Right. And we know that sort of the history of public speech in America has been that we have laws that are very specifically put in place that we talked to Meg about Mm -hmm. in order to sort of protect Americans from the worst consequences of their speech. Mm-hmm. You know, to protect speech against government. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that theme that we're so aware of and we have laws to protect in some ways is still a cultural thread that's running through everything because we don't name it explicitly. Mm. When Chris said that about public space and about um, people needing explicit permission and how much Vermont doesn't give explicit permission for these things. It was a really interesting twist on this use of public land and common space and how we label and how we welcome um, that I think we need to do in our conversations just as much 
as in our sort of physical infrastructure. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, because that is one thing I think human society has used for eons. It's nothing new. When you want to protect the status quo, you come up with all these ingenious ways to make sure that people follow that status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, and I think the the use of public land in Vermont is a really great example because, you know, when you when you were saying um, how we welcome people I, and and have these conversations, I would also say how we lay frameworks and how we kind of lay context mm-hmm. because I can just playing devil's advocate. I can say, well, Vermont may not think it has to throw out the welcome mat because the law is unless you're told you can't go somewhere, you are 100% allowed. Um, but if you don't know that. And no one knows the laws, right? Like right. no one, like we, you know, there are so many of them mm-hmm. and how would anyone know all of them? Right. Well, that's what I mean. That, yeah. That's why that education piece has to be in there with the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but going back to, to community conversations, yeah, that is, that's a muscle I don't know that we've been um, working on an interpersonal level. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that um, being able to listen um, when something makes us uncomfortable. I was having a conversation with a, a friend the other day uh, who doesn't live in this community and she was talking about safety within her community and she said to me oh well it it must be really cool for you being a journalist you're always safe Hmm. and I said well that's interesting and I thought about that Um, and and I asked her why and she says well because you're a public figure so everyone knows who you are and so you know if you show up somewhere people you have a purpose and she explained but And I I think she's right about that to a certain extent. And because I do have quite literally a microphone, that does give me a certain level of power. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have a job where if someone tries to shut me down, it's it's an excuse to write an article. Um, However, oh gosh, where this was going to tie in with things. I'm so sorry if it doesn't. However, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily safe. Mm And one reason I'm not is because, oh, this is how it ties in. Part of my job is to point out what's not working. And so part of my job is to make people uncomfortable and make them put in front of them things they may not want to know Mm -hmm. or put in front of them a world they don't want to see. And because of that, that will sometimes elicit. I have had people elicit very strong emotions towards me because of that and so therefore it means the benchmark for me being safe is not making people uncomfortable however because I do it means anyone could lash out at me Mm -hmm. you know it it could be my neighbor it could be the police force it could be the town manager it could be someone on the street um and and I found that just really Interesting, and I'm not saying I don't feel safe in my community. I do, um, but, but there that, are many places in this country where journalists are under con- and in the world, mm-hmm. very much so in the world. Um, where for that very reason, journalists yeah. are profoundly unsafe physically as well as emotionally. Right, right, and and I so I think that just highlights an extreme example of kind of how we're not 
holding space for people to step out of line. Mm-hmm. Even and when it's your job. <laughs> even when it's your job. And, but I heard from your friend, um, when you told the story of your friend, I did not actually speak to your friend. Um, <laughs> that would have been cool though, right? <laughs> it would have been cool. Um, maybe I have spoken to your friend. I don't know who they are. But they, <laughs> um, this idea that you're safe because you had a reason and a mm-hmm. framework and a to be in a conversation, right? right? And I totally understand that, I found that really right? Fascinating. That yes. so many of us show up somewhere and we're like, oh, I don't know what hat I'm wearing, so I don't know if I deserve to be here. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's such an interesting shift for me as a legislator now um, to be somewhere and to know that. I have a specific kind of small talk that I can make with people now, you know, mm-hmm. so it does. It gives me this increased um, social comfort in a lot of places. Yeah. And I also realize that I've sort of immediately make people uncomfortable mm-hmm. um, because everyone's aware of the power that I'm sitting with. There. Right. Right. But so many of us show up in these public spaces and these public meetings in just even, you know, a social event in our community that's a public event and don't don't know their place and that none we're so uncomfortable with our place. And we don't we all feel like we need to have a place. We assume everyone else knows their place. And. Yeah, which which says to me how far this it's echoing a little bit of some of our conversation with Meg Mont, how our place is quite simply we are members of this community in this functioning democracy therefore our democracy needs us Mm -hmm. and so that's really all the permission we need it is and i know that when i have recruited volunteers for um both for my campaign and for a lot of other projects people really don't know how capable they are yes And that is a great place to pause because we are going to go to some of, hear from some of our underwriters and then Emily and I will return. I love those underwriters. Aren't they wonderful? They are. I'm so grateful to them. Me too. It's the reason right now we have a microphone. Two even. Two. And and two headphones. It's exciting. New headphones even. It's so cool. So thank you, underwriters. Welcome back to this edition of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. And just in case anyone's wondering, the views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests, not of the radio station. Just in case you were confused about radio that. Radio stations do not have views. They don't. Just like corporations. Yeah, they're kind of like equipment mm-hmm. and, and buildings. Yep. <laughs> so... I want us to revisit one of the guests that we spoke to earlier in in this session, uh, Rebecca Ramos, and she talked a lot about decriminalizing um, sex work, and it brought up in our conversation a time in American history, uh, late 1800s, about the Comstock Laws. And how this this man basically hated women mm-hmm. <laughs> in very broad strokes. And, and so found all these ingenious ways to make sure that information about reproductive health and um, women's rights and all these things just did not get out to women. Mm-hmm. And he did it mostly through the post service, didn't yes. he? Yeah. 
And, and I found that fascinating about how his argument, if you weren't digging that deep, um, might hold water. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you just scraped the surface, it kind of fell apart. And that, that thought of processes, morality, laws, however you want to say it, getting hijacked mm-hmm. is really is still sitting with me. Mm-hmm. And, and just how do we make sure that that doesn't happen? Um, and again, how do, which means how do we create laws that reflect the needs of as many people as possible? Mm-hmm. I think a really good example of a place that that could have happened this last session, which I think I referenced during that interview, was H57, the abortion mm-hmm. rights law, because we were essentially legislating the status quo. So if any of the dozens of amendments that were put forward had passed, we would have wound up in a worse situation than before we even started with the law mm-hmm. and people would have needed to notice that that was happening on the house floor uh-huh. because if those amendments passed, we would have had to vote down the law. Interesting. Which then is a very difficult thing to explain to constituents. Mm-hmm. A lot of nuance there. And so I think it's something that's very easy to happen in Vermont. So other examples are, you know, amendments passed related to the minimum wage that were different from sort of the minimum wage law that, um, sorry, amendments didn't pass, but amendments were proposed. Mm -hmm. um, And I voted against one of them. And yes, it would have made the minimum wage happen sooner, which I love. And it wouldn't have passed um, if that amendment had been accepted. And so, and then explaining to constituents no I really didn't vote against your basic bottom interest this is an incredibly important issue to me Um, but there's nuance here Mm -hmm. or um, recently we had a weatherization bill where we were increasing the funding for um, weatherizing folks homes who have low incomes but the it was going to be funded through what's essentially a profoundly non-progressive tax. Um, mm-hmm. It was a tax on fuel oil. And so a lot of people voted against that. And so I think that um, especially given the citizen legislature and the lack of staff that we have, hmm. um, staff to support communications, staff to host meetings in the communities, staff to read all of the legislation because there's often, you know, 15 laws that we're voting on in a day. Mm -hmm. And we're also in our committee time. So to really understand the um, backstory of each thing, I think in that environment, Vermont is really ripe for just that kind of hijacking. And I think in a lot of ways, we're lucky it hasn't been worse than it has been. I have two responses to that. One, the other thing that's not completely missing, but has been uh, winnowed down quite a bit, and that would be the uh, number of reporters who are covering... Practically missing. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, like, VT Digger does a great job. Seven Days does a great job of, of what they can cover, but they are limited, too, because they only have so many people. And so you're missing some of the people who used to do just what you said, sit down, read a law, 
and provide information to the community. Um, no, and those reporters, because there's so few of them, tend to spend their limited time on whatever the hot topic is, right. which is already the topic that's under a lot of consideration and attention, rather than focusing in the committees where, you know, my committee, for instance, I think there was a reporter there twice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And we did uh, all kinds of things, <laughs> um, may, some of which may be terrible. I, have no, I don't know yet, mm-hmm. you know. And yeah, it's really, we need journalists there. You're missing that other outside voice to say, yeah. wait a minute, what about? The, the fourth estate? Yeah. Is that what? The fourth estate or the fifth estate? I think it's the fifth estate and the fourth wall. Okay. Um, <laughs> fifth estate. What are the other four estates then? Um, good question. Because I think it was a, a British guy who termed the, the phrase. Oh, and they have more houses. Yeah. It might be the fourth estate. I always get it confused. But while you're looking that up, <laughs> um, the other thing I, I was thinking about, just this this issue the other day, I don't remember why, but we have been very lucky in Vermont that for the most part, I think we have very well-meaning people who step up to serve in the legislature. And you may not always agree with them, but I do feel that for the most part everyone who's there is has good intentions mm-hmm. and so whether i agree with them or not i know they're coming from a good place and so that gives me confidence that we can move forward but it really only takes you know one or two people to start manipulating the system because mm-hmm. the system does allow for that manipulation mm-hmm. um i often reflect on the fact that it was you know just a couple people um who really fundamentally shifted the conversation around gun laws in Vermont. Mm-hmm. Um, our own Anne Braden being mm-hmm. one of the most active people there um, and did incredible work. But that was just a few people. Yeah. And so... Wind is kind of the same situation. And wind is the same situation. That was just a few people. And so you can be really excited that we live in a state where just a few people can make a difference. And I am. It's one of the reasons I love Vermont. And that's kind of terrifying. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it is the fourth estate. Okay, it is the fourth yes. estate. Um, isn't it just the internet, just the most amazing thing? It's I have so these cool. moments of wonder about how it. Did we, how did we survive beforehand? <laughs> I, we would have had to come back to our listeners after we went and looked at books. I mm-hmm. remember that time. I used a card catalog, Gen X, yes. living on both sides of the digital wall. And, and being with those, remember the magazines with all their... Maybe you don't because I was an English major. But if you had to reference a magazine article, mm-hmm. you'd go and you'd get the green books with the index. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so the term the fourth estate or the fourth power fre- refers to the press and news media, both an explicit capacity of advocacy and implicit ability to frame political issues. The other three is the traditional European concept of the three estates, of the, which is the clergy, the nobility, and the commoners. So hmm. we might have to... We're going to have to come up with something else. Yeah, and I was thinking about <laughs> it. I've always thought about it in terms of public, private, and nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth is the media, which is sort of separate from those frames. Because um, I think about public, private, and nonprofit as having three very separate bottom lines, mm-hmm. um, which shape all of their other behaviors. And the media has sort of a fourth bottom line, a different bottom line from those yeah. other three. So I'm going to... I think I'm just going to stick with my definition that I have been operating under like for it. a while and ignore the real definition. <laughs> well, 
wait you're, you wouldn't be the first. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> that might be how most legislation is created. Yeah. yeah. Um, which <laughs> brings us back to... To legislating morality. Yes. So what have you, as, as someone who now in January will be going back to Montpelier, and, you know, we, we heard Rebecca talk about decriminalizing sex work. We heard David poses uh, and and what it means to come out of a, a drug addiction and advocate for for better laws around around substance misuse. Um, we talked to Meg Mott. Uh, we talked about we've talked to Chris Campany, public space. You know, what is how are you going to take our conversations and put them to use? I am going to continue to try to legislate and discuss legislation from a place of historical context Mm -hmm. that's really important to me um, and is really effective in some places and spaces and with some people Um, and I'm also really going to continue to talk about what works Mm -hmm. and really as a member of the government accountability committee which is a joint committee across the house and senate um I'm really happy to have that platform to continue to ask legislators to say, okay, this is a great idea. This is something your constituent asks you to do. This is something that you really want to do. This is a problem that you need, you see need solving. You've put forward a bill. Do you have a sense of what that end game would look like? Do you know what would actually work to change this? And how will you know if it works? Mm -hmm. And so if we are always creating legislation where we have clearly identified our intent the intended change that we're looking for in our communities and we have clearly identified the point that I just lost because someone walked in the door Um, when we clearly acknowledge intent when we clearly identify intent and when we clearly talk about what the perceived impact would be then I think it really helps us move beyond legislating morality Mm -hmm. to legislating solutions that would improve our communities. And that's the big difference for me. And so I think the more we really ask people to take that next step into thinking through Mm -hmm. the end game, Mm -hmm. I think we can help people step back from um, the norms that are sort of default in their community, from assumptions that they're making and conversations they're having that's that's how i that's the particular tool i'm going to bring with me when i go to montpelier and just quickly one last question before we we wrap up here i'm curious you know i've been talking with some other reporters particularly john walters who says he has seen a shift in the democratic party in Vermont, um, in part in reflection to what's happening at the national stage with the Republican Party, that more people who might have been liberal or moderate Republicans Mm -hmm. don't identify with the party anymore. So they're moving either uh, into becoming independents or into the Democratic Party, but it's kind of shifting uh, the Democratic Party a bit mm-hmm. that he's seeing. Uh, and so it to me, it's making the party more diverse. Mm-hmm. So you have the more progressive and now you have the conservative. Um, what what do you feel? So how are you going to build those conversations now that you have a party that's like same name, but has maybe different needs or outlooks? 
the party is incredibly diverse as the state is fairly diverse for its tininess. Um, and so that's what I really appreciate about this neutral model of asking about what works. So yes, I am absolutely going to be up there advocating that we decriminalize buprenorphine, um, that we, you know, just have it available on the street, that sex work is a legitimate occupation for those who are interested in it and that we're protecting those people as workers um, with workers' rights, that free speech is an essential part of a vibrant society, that public space should be available for everyone, that, you know, bathroom access is an important thing and just because private money contributes to something doesn't mean that there aren't public rights of way there. But I really think that the question of what works and how do we know what works can transcend what feels like partisan divides within the party um, and partisan divides within the building. Because I think in the end, as you said, everyone does have good intentions, does want what's best for Vermonters. And I think opiate use is really the best example of this because we can all agree that we don't want people to die. And on that note, we are going to wrap up this edition of the Montpelier Happy Hour. As always, you can find this um, live on WVEW 107.7 FM. And you can find us podcasted at the Vermontitude SoundCloud page or the Vermontitude Facebook page. Emily, if people need to get a hold of you, what do they do? EmilyKornheiser.org, EmilyKornheiser at Gmail. Emily Kornheiser on Facebook, E. Kornheiser on Twitter and Instagram, and I'm often just walking down the street. You can always catch me on the street, or you can drop me a line at the Vermontitude SoundCloud or Facebook page. Have a great weekend, everyone. And we're going to talk about money next week. Oh, the exciting green stuff. Take care, everyone. <laughs>